Well, good. Let's dive in here to Matthew chapter 11. We are continuing our verse-by-verse study of Matthew's gospel. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 15 today. And uh, if you need a Bible, we do have them in the back there. That is our gift to you. If you want to follow along with my sermon notes, those are in the foyer. And by the way, please feel free to take them home. You don't need to put them back. Uh, That is also our our gift to you. Um, And as you turn to Matthew chapter 11, let me review from last Sunday. Uh, Jesus taught us about doubt. And we asked whether or not doubt is a virtue or is it a vice. And really, the person who initiated this conversation was John the baptizer. John was thrown into prison by King Herod. Evidently, Herod didn't, you know, he didn't like John calling him out on his sexual sin. So he said, no, I'm going to throw you in a pit. And uh, John basically had a lot of time on his hands while he's in prison, about a year, year and a half. John sent his disciples to ask Jesus a question. Jesus, are you really the Christ? And we talked about all the doubt that was going through his mind, right? He's like, was I wrong? Was I preaching the wrong thing? If I'm a prophet, what am I doing here in in prison? And why haven't you freed me? And all these things going through John's mind. But he really wanted to know, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? John had some doubts. And he asked Jesus to clear up that confusion. Uh, We define doubt as a state of uncertainty regarding God's word, his, his, uh, his works, and regarding God himself. And then let me review a couple key points. We said key point number one from last week, that doubt is not always a sign of sin. It may be a sign that someone's thinking. Isn't that good? That encourages me. And whether, whether it's sin or somebody's deeply thinking about something, we talked about how, how we ask God, what our attitude is, the, the tone in which we approach the Lord. It, it, it determines, what, am I going to come at the Lord? Am I angry at Him? Or am I going to ask humbly? Key point number two from last week, we said that we're in good company. If you doubt, anyone can have doubts. Many Christians believe that you should never, ever, ever have any doubt. We discussed that's not always the case. Plus, here's the other thing. I think if you convince yourself, like if you will yourself to believe that you're not supposed to have any doubt, instead of humbly and directly asking the Lord, you're really not being honest with yourself either. And that's not, that's not good. Now, one key point that I forgot to share with you was this, key point number three, and that doubt is a a state of uncertainty, yes, but it's tucked in in the middle. It's tucked midway between faith and unbelief. Doubt is a state of uncertainty tucked midway between faith and unbelief. And we we looked at the father's story in in the gospel of Luke. Um, He had a son who was demon-possessed, and the, the, the disciples couldn't, Cast out the demon. Wonderful, wonderful story on doubt. And then we wrapped up last Sunday by discussing some contributors to doubt. We said that the first major contributor are tragic 
circumstances. I mean, John was thrown in prison. That's pretty much a game changer. Now, we, we may not get thrown in prison, but we've all got tragedies in our life. Whether it's a child dies, whether it's a spouse leaves or our spouse dies, um, cancer strikes, we've all got something. And we talked about how that's normal to have doubts. A second major contributor to doubt is incomplete revelation. So just as John the baptizer, you know, he didn't have the whole story in his day. We don't have the entire story in ours either. So we sometimes have doubts because God is still writing our story, isn't he? It's not over yet. No matter where you are in your story, God is still doing something amazing with your life. And he wants you to come and wrestle with this doubt before him. And then the third cause of doubt is just the world and the culture that we live in. Uh, many believers today are confused about what's going on, all these world events, these political issues, and they're confused because they, they simply spend too much time in the world. They're not spending enough time in the kingdom of God. Even when they read God's word, they're still confused. So that's a, that's a review from last week. And today, Jesus, really, he moves us from John the baptizer's doubt to the crowd's doubt. So Jesus gives us a sermon on John today. Um, John the baptizer is probably the most underrated man in Scripture. His official ministry was maybe six months long, and yet it was the most important ministry any prophet could ever do. Why is that? Well, John wasn't only a prophet, only, right? Only a prophet. Uh, he was a prophet's prophet. He was a super prophet. His role was to introduce Jesus, and that role was of divine greatness. Now, we live in a world that defines greatness differently. We look at, at maybe education, and we look at somebody with a certain degree or the number of degrees, and we consider that great. We look at leadership abilities, uh, whether it's how big someone's business is. Um, people look at how big a church is, and they define greatness on that as well. We look at the number of followers on social media, or we look at, at a politician's office, or maybe athletics. We look at the, um, the Olympics and see who has won a gold medal or a certain team winning the World Series or the Super Bowl or the, a pro golfer winning the Masters or the U.S. Open. We look at, at actors and they, they win all sorts of awards, Academy Awards and Oscars and Emmys. And musicians, we look at how many records they have sold and we look at all these things. They go, wow, these, these guys are great. Jesus doesn't do that, though. Today, we're going to see how Jesus defines greatness, and he uses John the baptizer as the standard for greatness. So how does God's standard of greatness, how does that impact you today? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand now for the reading of God's Word. Just as we sang those songs to the Lord with one voice and one church, let me encourage you now to read with me uh, the Word of God. We're going to start in verse 7. As these men were leaving, 
Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. Dear friends, these are the words from God this morning. They are infallible, they are inspired, they are inerrant. Please pray with me. The psalmist writes, I will listen to what the Lord will say, and surely the Lord will declare peace. Peace to his people, peace to his faithful ones, and not let them go back to their foolish ways. Amen and amen. Please be seated, guys. Thank you. All right, let's take a look here. I'm going to start in verse 1 from last week because I want to make sure we're all on the same page with the context here. So starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples. And he asked, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, You go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy, they're cleansed. The deaf, they now hear. The dead are raised. And the poor, they are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And as these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. And he asked them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? So from last week, Jesus answers John's questions. Jesus' answer will leave no doubt, pun intended, Right? In John's mind about who Jesus is and what kind of Messiah, what kind of Christ Jesus is. So as John's disciples, they turn around, they begin to, to walk back towards the prison. Jesus says, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And Jesus, it's like he turns back around to the crowd and then he begins to ask them questions. So verse 7, he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? And he waits. And he waits. 
no one answers. Maybe people are a little hesitant to answer. Maybe you're wondering, like, is this a rhetorical question, Jesus? I'm not sure if I should step in here or not. You know, but Jesus presses in. He said, did you go out to see a reed swaying in the wind? John the baptizer first bore witness to Jesus, and now Jesus bears witness to John. See, Jesus is the master teacher, and he's the master teacher because he's God. However, his, his first century illustrations, they get lost on us today, don't they? Some say that Jesus, when he was teaching, he was teaching outside and he saw some reeds kind of just swaying in the wind and he decided to use that as an illustration. That may be true, but Jesus likely uses a, a well-known parable here in the first century. It's called the reed and the oak tree. According to this parable, it's not found in scripture, but according to this parable, there's a giant oak tree and then a small reed that were both planted by a river. Whenever a storm came, the deep roots of the oak tree, right, it was, it was firmly planted. It wasn't going anywhere. It, it could withstand powerful winds. It could, however, be blown over if the wind was, was strong enough. There was nothing weak. There was nothing compromising about this oak tree. Now, the reed, on the other hand, that would just bend to the right or to the left, even with a slight breeze. The conclusion of the parable is this, uh, the, the oak tree, because of its refusal to compromise with the wind, it could end up losing its life, it could be blown over, but the reed, it might survive, it might, but it could only do so just because it continued to bend. So Jesus is clearly pointing to this very familiar Jewish parable, and he asked the question, did you guys go out into the wilderness to see a reed just blowing in the wind? In other words, why have you walked? Why have you made this effort to come out into the middle of the desert in this scorching heat, in this blazing sun? Why did you take the time to do that? Was this man whom you saw preaching and baptizing, was he a weak, uncertain, and vacillating wimp? Is that what John was? Did you ever hear John change his message or, or compromise his, his standards? Did, did you go out to see somebody with no backbone? Did you go out to see someone who spends more time reading the latest opinion polls rather than his Bible? Did you go out to see like this pious little clergyman who has no backbone whatsoever? Verse 8, maybe, maybe people in the crowd are like, no, no. And then Jesus asked, verse 8, what then did you go out to see? And so this is the second time that Jesus asked this question. I'm guessing he asked it a second time because nobody answered or he didn't get the answer that he wanted to. So he presses in here. He says, okay, did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothes? Soft expensive clothes. Did you go out into the middle of the desert to see somebody wearing an Armani suit? Did you guys expect, you know, to go out and see or hear this prosperity preacher proclaiming the ultimate get rich quick scheme on religion? 
He goes, he, he continues in verse eight. He says, see, those who wear soft or expensive clothes, they live in royal palaces. They, they don't live in the middle of the, de- in the desert. So the crowd may be laughing at this point because they know John didn't wear expensive clothes. John didn't even take a shower, let alone have a, a second set of clothes. Everything about John the Baptist was a visual protest against the world's self-indulgence and the self-centeredness of the religious elite. John had one outfit, and it was the prophet's garb. He wore, he wore this garb. It was made of camel hair, had a leather belt. He also ate locusts and wild honey. Mm-mm-mm. Do we have any locusts and wild honey back there, guys? verse 9 Jesus answered he asked the question again he he says what then did you go out to see it's the same question so Jesus he hasn't got an answer yet or maybe a correct answer from the crowd and after the third time of asking it's like Jesus just waits for an answer And maybe after a long, awkward pause, you know how it is in Bible study sometime, you know, the teacher just kind of lets it sit there until somebody says something. That's maybe what Jesus is doing. And finally, somebody's like, a prophet? A prophet. Hmm, a prophet. Jesus asked a what question three times in a row. This is not a whom question. So in other words, Jesus calls attention to John's office, not his personality. Now, why would Jesus do that? Because Israel has been waiting for a prophet for 400 years. So the the answer to Jesus' question is yes, he's clearly a prophet. So Jesus says in verse 9, a prophet, oh yeah, yeah, I, I tell you, he's more than a prophet. The prophetic office here began with Moses. It extended all the way uh, until the the Babylonian captivity. And then after the the captivity, God was silent for 400 years. Israel had no prophet until John the baptizer. and, And John was like the valedictorian of all the prophets. John was the most powerful, he was the most confrontational spokesman God ever called. However, there were other prophets living during this time. And these these prophets, they served earthly kings. So a little sermon in a sermon, just because someone calls themselves a prophet, just because someone calls themselves a pastor today, just because someone calls themselves a Christian does not mean that they are. This is demonstrated, I love scripture. This is so funny in this narrative I want to show you. Um, it's a narrative between King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat. First Kings chapter 22, King Ahab asked this question. He says, hey Jeho- Jehoshaphat, will you join me in battle to recover Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat replied, why of course, of course I will. You and I were one. My troops, are, my troops are your troops. My horses are your horses. 
And then Jehoshaphat added, wait a second, time out. Maybe we're moving too fast. Let's, let's find out what the Lord says. So the king of Israel, that's Ahab, he summoned the prophets. He's got 400 prophets. So he asked his prophets. He says, hey guys, should I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or should I hold back? And they all replied, oh yeah, yes king. Yes, you, you go, go right ahead. The Lord will, king, will give the king the victory. Now I want you to notice something. Notice how none of them prayed, and they all said, all 400 said yes. And it looks like they said yes fairly quickly. Hmm. But King Jehoshaphat noticed this, and he asked, well, wait a second. Verse uh, 22, verse 7. He said, is there not also a prophet of the Lord? Maybe we should ask him the same question. So King Ahab, he replies, he says, well, there is one more man who, who could consult the Lord for us, but I hate him. He never prophesies anything good but trouble for me. This is a fascinating verse because if Ahab hates God's prophet, that means Ahab hates God. The problem is not with the prophet. The problem is with him. So all that to say, there is nobody like John the baptizer. John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb before John was born. An angel appears and, and talks to his father. John's father is a priest. His name is Zechariah. So let me show you just a little story behind the man, John the, John the baptizer. Luke 1.8. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was his custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and to burn incense. So this idea of casting lots, it was a ritual where they would basically roll dice or something like it, and whatever the outcome was, it was a random outcome, they would perceive that as a divine instruction. So... Uh, Zechariah was chosen to do the priestly duties. This is a big deal. This is an honor for him to do this. Verse 10, so while the incense was being burned, a, a great crowd stood outside. They're praying for him. They're praying to the Lord. And while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appears standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and he was overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. The angel said, no, it's okay, it's okay. Don't be afraid, Zechariah, it's okay. God has heard your prayer, and your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You're going to have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. Now, he must never touch wine. He must never drink an alcoholic drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth, and he will turn many Israelites to the Lord. And here we go, verse 17. He will be a man with the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. So John the baptizer, he's been set apart by God, um, and his, his sole role is to announce the Christ. Think about this. He is, an, he is announcing the Messiah. He is announcing God. 
wrapped up in flesh and bone, who is now walking the earth. Verse 9, Jesus continues. What then did you go out to see? Prophet? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was a prophet, and he was much more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Jesus says, see, I'm sending my, my messenger ahead of you. He says, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. This is the father speaking, and he's speaking about Jesus there. He, John, will prepare your way before you, Jesus. So if you look in your Bible, verse 10 is probably in bold or italicized or has some kind of quotes around it. And the reason for that is because Jesus is uh, referring to the Old Testament, referring to the prophet Malachi. Malachi 3.1, let me show you this. Malachi said, see, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Pretty interesting here how Jesus changed the pronouns to make it more personal. Regardless, it was John the baptizer who was given this divine responsibility to introduce God to the the world. Jesus continues here in verse 11. He says, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. That phrase there, born of women, that, that sounds weird, doesn't it? That's just kind of weird. All Jesus is saying there, that's just an ordinary human birth. John is, he's not divine. He is a man. Uh, Jesus's point here in verse 11 is this. Basically, as far as mankind is concerned, John the baptizer is the most incredible. He is the most remarkable and the greatest man who ever lived. What do you think about that? That sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? Because I look at this and I go, wait a second. Really? Jesus, are you sure? I mean, what what about Abraham? Abraham was the biological father of the nation of Israel. Jesus, are you you saying that, that that John was greater than Moses? Moses talked to Yahweh God face to face as a friend. Jesus, are you saying that John was... Greater than King David? The greatest king that Israel's ever had? I mean, how, how's that? I mean, these guys have spiritual resumes. They, they go on for miles and miles and miles. And then there's John, whose primary role was, once, once again, to introduce Jesus Christ to the world. Now, we don't have a whole lot um, Regarding John's ministry when it comes to the details, like how deep and wide it went, we do have some, some hints in the book of Acts. But, but all that to say this, if there had ever been a man with unwavering convictions, it was John. He stood up to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even King Herod. John was such an influential figure. He, so, he was so powerful that many thought that he was the Christ himself. And what made John so special is once again, he had the privilege of actually pointing people to God wrapped up in flesh and bone. Obviously, none of the other prophets did that. And because John did, because John did this, Jesus says he is the greatest man who ever lived. And I look at that and I go, wow, 
Uh, that just goes to show me God's ways are so much different than ours. His standards, so much bigger, so much higher than ours. Well, Jesus continues here in verse 11. He says, but, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So the kingdom of heaven is the spiritual dimension that you and I, we can't see. Uh, the kingdom of heaven refers to God's rule, his reign, his work. And it's in this kingdom age, this is where we live, um, where even the least of us, and I do mean us, for those of you who have uh, confessed your sin, for those of you who believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the grave and, and Jesus walked out of the grave, uh, for those of you who call Jesus your Lord and your Savior, this is who uh, Jesus is talking about. He's saying that we, sitting here today, are greater than John. Now, how is that possible? I mean, look around. We are no John the Baptizers. <laughs> Jesus says this because we understand things that John and the Old Testament prophets did not know and could not know. So in other words, we know the whole story. You know how Paul Harvey used to say, and here's the rest of the story. Yeah, we've, we, we've got the whole book, right? We, we, we've read the last page. We know how this ends. So let's just pause and let that sink in for a second. Do you understand what a privilege that is? This is, it's such a privilege to have the whole counsel of God. And that's why John the baptizer doubted because he was in the middle of it. And many, many times we're in the middle of our stuff too. Whether it's kids or finances or health and we're going, God, I've got some doubts. I need your help. Yeah, he's still writing our story. And yet at the same time, we know how this whole thing unfolds, don't we? Guys, that is so cool. That is so cool. See, John was imprisoned. He was executed before Jesus bore the cross and walked out of the grave. And we are on the other side of that. Not only are we on the other side of that, we're 2,000 years on the other side of that. It's been said that we as the church, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We've got 2,000 years of other people studying God's word, walking with the Lord, and interpreting the scriptures. And when we read their works, and we read God's word, and we read the word of the word, uh, when we read the word of God by the spirit of God, he speaks to us, and he speaks to us because we're also able to read works of these other men. And we've got more clarity than anybody else on the face of the planet. And that's why we are so privileged. Verse 12, Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. Now, just like with any other prophet, um, some people like John, others did not. John created conflict wherever he went. His message of repentance 
Yeah, it's about the same excitement that we get today, don't we? When people tell us to repent. He rocked the boat. He stirred up the hornet's nest. The religious leaders uh, didn't like that. The king didn't like to be told what to do either and to repent. So everywhere John went, there was a reaction about John. There was violence even. So verse 12, let's look at it again. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. So verse 12 is, this is tricky. This is tricky to exegete and to interpret here. It can be read in two ways. First, it can be read in a passive voice, almost like this external voice, to where the violence is happening from the outside. So, for example, the the Pharisees and the scribes, they attacked John verbally, coming from the outside. Herod, King Herod, attacked John physically. He was coming from the outside. The second way to look at this verse is from what's called the, the middle voice, the internal voice, meaning that the kingdom of God shows up and is now flexing its own muscles, right? The kingdom of God is is now on the earth, and it is entering the world against its will. The world doesn't want God, and yet the kingdom of God continues to move forward. So, King Jesus, he is using force. He is forcing his way into a world, even though the world doesn't want him. We have the the first explanation here is negative. Uh, The second is positive. And here's the thing. Both of them are true. Both of them are true. So there is a third option to this, and and I think it would be best to consider this, uh, this verse, verse 12, as a riddle. We know that Jesus is fond of parables and and riddles here. He likes to play on words. So if Jesus is using suffering violence, that term there, suffering violence, as a play on words, uh, the translation would be similar to this, and this is coming from the NLT. From the time that John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing And yet at the same time, violent people are attacking it. I know it's a little difficult to understand what Jesus is saying there. So let me give you an illustration uh, from World War II. World War II. For several years, uh, America supported the war against Germany and Japan. America supported the war Uh, via materials, lots of physical things. They were making things to help the war. But at this time, they were holding back its soldiers. However, after Pearl Harbor, America engaged in in the war. Um, And they not only engaged with materials, but also with its soldiers. So all that to say this, the kingdom of heaven, it has arrived through the love of Christ through his teaching, through his preaching, and through the gospel. It's not through weapons. It's not through violence. Uh, But since evil men are violent, since the world does not want the gospel, since they don't want God, it's going to take godly strength to move the kingdom forward. The world will see that second time around. They'll see it through the rapture. They will see it at the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. So everything from Genesis to Malachi, Malachi is the the last Old Testament prophet, um, to John, who is the prophet who is introducing Jesus, they all had one prophetic theme, and that was that the Messiah is coming. Get ready, the Messiah is coming. Every single prophet had the same message. And verse 14, Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. The last words that God said to his people before John showed up was this, Malachi chapter 4. This is the second to last verse in the Old Testament. God speaking through Malachi says this, he says, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and the dreadful day of the Lord arrives. How many, how many prosperity preachers are preaching on that verse? So John is not the reincarnated Elijah. Uh, what Jesus is saying here, he's another prophet who looks very much like Elijah. So Jesus' point here is that if the Jews received John's message as God's message, and and they received Jesus as their Savior, then John would indeed be the Elijah mentioned in Malachi. But long story short, Israel did not accept John's message, so John would not be Elijah, the Elijah mentioned in Malachi, and the kingdom is not established either. So, another prophet has to come, another prophet Uh, Like Elijah, it could be um, one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. Could be, we don't know for sure. But regardless, because most Jews did not accept John, and they, they did not accept Jesus, Jesus gave a final rebuke and warning to the crowd. He says this, verse 15, Let everyone who has ears listen. Let everyone who has ears listen. You guys remember that Verizon commercial? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? He would take two steps. Can you hear me now? In other words, Jesus asked, and this is really important for us to land today. Jesus is asking this. If John truly is Elijah, and Jesus says that he is in our text today, then who am I? Jesus is asking, who am I? If John is the Elijah prophesied in Malachi, then who am I? So is Jesus just a great teacher? Did Jesus die as a martyr? Can we place Jesus in the same category as Muhammad and Buddha? I find this text Fascinating because Jesus asked the crowd three times, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Probably a little bit uncomfortable for the, for the crowd. What did you go out to see? And then I would like to ask you this morning, why are you here? Why are you here? Aside from the Thanksgiving turkey. <laughs> All right. I'll let that slide today. (laughs) Why are you here? 
I hope you're not here out of guilt. I, I hope you're not here because you were spiritually abused growing up and you, you think you have to make God happy by attending church. I hope you're not here because of that. I, I hope that, that you're here to worship the Lord. And I hope that you're here because you want to be here. We come here to worship the Lord. That is primary. This is the best day of the week and the best time of the, the day is when we get to gather as a church and worship the Lord. I hope you're here to serve others. I hope that you're here to, to not only be with friends and family and to be an encouragement to your church, but to serve them and to love them and to pray for them and to give them encouragement. I hope you're here to share Jesus. As a church, we've only got one thing to do, the Great Commission, and we are to share Jesus day by day. We you've just experienced God verse by verse, and, and now we are to, to take what we've learned and to share Jesus day by day out in the Verde Valley. We're not, we're not supposed to keep it in here. We're not supposed to go home and do another Bible study and keep watching other pastors and preachers and our head just, and then pretty soon you can't stand up and just fall over. You've got to get this stuff out. There's such a blessing in that, guys. We come here to worship the Lord, to serve others, and to share Jesus. And, and one more, I pray that you're here as you prepare to die. We're not getting any younger. That, that, that you are coming here so that you can prepare to meet this Jesus that we talk about every single week, face to face. And then when, when he sees you, your last breath here, you're going to see his face and he's going to say what? Welcome. Good and faithful what? servant. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. Thank you for teaching us about the most underrated man in scripture. I pray, Father, as we read your scriptures, expounded your scriptures, that you continue to soften our heart. That you would continue to deal with our own doubts. That we would confess our sins. We would make things right with you and, and make things right with others. And at the same time, Lord God, we come together as a church to be grateful. We are a grateful people. We're certainly not perfect. We are messed up. And that just gives us the opportunity to get on our knees and to beg and to praise you for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness that only comes through Christ Jesus our Lord. We are a grateful people. Thank you, Father, for, be, for being so generous and gracious to us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.